There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 14th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the vote in the House of Commons last night was always going to be ridiculous, or at least it was expected to be relatively straightforward in a ridiculous Brexit kind of way. But as it turned out, it ended up being chaotic. So let's uh, see what the judgment is in the British paper. Uh, this morning and if you loved Brexit like I love Brexit you'd be delighted to see the front page of uh, the Sun yes it has got to a stage where current affairs presenters believe uh, that they are now hosting comedy programmes because Brexit has gone from the sublime to the ridiculous and the Sun uh, leads uh, today with Brexit and its angle is Two more years of Brexit, God forbid. But where this is going, well, God knows. Let's take a look at the other front pages today. It's a total no-no, according to the Metro. May's final warning to Tory rebels, back me or lose Brexit. That's the front page headline on The Guardian. The Daily Mail, chaos reigns. May loses control after Minister's mass revolt to rule out no deal. Now she wants third vote on her deal and warns back me or risk losing Brexit altogether. May issues ultimatum after MPs seize control with vote to ditch no deal Brexit. The front page of the Financial Times. The Irish or the Daily Mirror in the UK says meltdown. Brexit crisis deepens. Brexit meltdown. The same phrase that's used on the front page of the Times and perhaps uh, the good news is on the front of uh, the Daily Express uh, if uh, you read behind the lines because it says don't let EU bullies win the day. Then to the Daily Telegraph and it says Brexit delayed until further notice after a gang of four rebels. Now that's referring to four ministers and the chaos in the House of Commons last night. It was confusing in the extreme with the government telling MPs to vote against 
its own motion. It wanted to rule out a no-deal Brexit on the 29th of March and it seemed as though it was going to get the support of MPs for that because there was an amendment to this from Caroline Spellman. The Spellman amendment had suggested that there would be no deal at any time. In other words, even past the 29th of March and the government wanted to vote against that. Then Caroline Spellman withdrew her amendment so it was looking good for the British government but then the Speaker allowed uh, uh, Vess uh, Cooper to move uh, the same amendment and it was won by a majority of four with Amber Rudd, Greg Clark, David Gawk and David Mundell, the gang of four as uh, the Telegraph describes them, voting against the government despite a three-line whip. Sarah Newton, another junior minister, voted in favour of the motion and has resigned. Clear? No, of course not. It has been a confusing week. Let's talk about this now with Phelan O'Neill, market specialist with the Irish Farmers Journal. And it's no clearer at all, it would seem, this morning, Phelan. Uh, good morning, Michael. And I, I think I would have to join with those sentiments. Uh, we've had just about every possibility come in front of us this week in relation to Brexit. Uh, and yet, as we come towards the end of the week, uh, in many ways, things haven't moved forward. The two real proposals that are on the table as things stand right now, despite all the votes that were in Parliament yesterday, are uh, the UK is leaving on 29th of March. And as of now, there is no deal. Uh, she's twice, the Prime Minister's twice tried to have her withdrawal agreement approved. Each time she's got a very big uh, defeat in Parliament. So uh, as things stand, we're now heading for the cliff edge. Of course, uh, the votes in Parliament yesterday tell us what the sentiment is. Uh, but those votes are in no way binding. Uh, you know, they are just expressions of they're a wish list, if you like, as opposed to uh, a specific action plan. And the EU has actually put it very clearly. The only thing that they can do is to uh, really at this stage accept the withdrawal agreement or alternatively look for an extension uh, to give more time to try and come to some sort of solution. And when you say we're at the cliff edge or coming close to the cliff edge, uh, you're talking about crashing out. Is that your sense of it? Uh, because it does seem as though the Prime Minister has lost complete control with Stephen Hammond telling the BBC this morning that ministers were told that they could vote against the government yesterday, a situation that is unheard of for members of the cabinet to defy the government. Absolutely, uh, you know, and that's something that, uh, you know, we think of it in an Irish context, you know, if a government loses one vote uh, in the dial, we think, well, there's uh, a lame duck Taoiseach, that's it, gone. Uh, now, at this stage, Theresa May, I can't recall the last time that she won a major vote in Parliament. You know, it seems as if defeat follows defeat. Uh, the Cabinet, as you've highlighted there, are obviously going their own direction at this stage. They're staking out their positions, obviously, for future leadership challenges, etc. Uh, but look, meanwhile, the clock's ticking. You know, we're now into the last, we're, we're at the 14th of uh, March today. 29th of March at 11pm is the, is the deadline. Uh, and, and from an Irish agriculture perspective, which is the lens that we look at everything through, uh, the picture is really, really grim. You know, there's no good Brexit for the overall Irish economy, but agriculture in particular gets an absolute taste in it. 
Well, there's no doubt about it as things stand, uh, and I suppose uh, that's the purpose of asking the original questions as to whether that's the situation we're going to be in, or what is that situation, because what was proposed yesterday by the British government appears to make little or no sense to anybody whatsoever, and it does to a large extent appear to be an attempt to confuse the situation, Uh, and I suppose our vocabulary has changed over time, over the last couple of years. Uh, We've been talking about Brexit, we've been talking about Article 50 and of course we've been talking about the backstop. But what is a a backstop? Uh, And I think that to some degree the British yesterday tried to confuse exactly that question by suggesting that goods could flow freely from the south of Ireland to the north. That was absolutely fascinating, uh, the move yesterday in terms of the, uh, I would almost call it a reverse backstop at this stage, um, at the risk of inventing another uh, phrase or another word, uh, because there was something, uh, there was there seemed to be two positions emerge in the morning yesterday. We had the issue of the whole tariff list, uh, which of course, and as we expected, agriculture, beef in particular, was going to come out of it particularly bad. Uh, but then we had uh, the announcement that, look, you know, there would be no border imposed by the UK on Northern Ireland. Ireland, and product could travel quite freely to Northern Ireland. Uh, and then, since the Farmers Journal has learned that uh, industry in the North have been briefed to the fact that product coming in from the Republic of Ireland, it will be essentially business as usual. So there will be absolutely no reason why companies uh, that have businesses both sides of the border, and as is the case of the meat industry very much, uh, there's no reason why product cannot travel from one from the Republic of Ireland up north and uh, through the north into the rest of the UK. And I think, and, and ironically, one of the barriers that I think the authorities in the UK see as, as giving some sort of a control in that move is that there's relatively limited port facilities in the north. You have two major ports, well, you have three ports that would do uh, a lot of the UK business. I suppose you have Larne, you have Belfast, and you have Warren Point. Uh, there's also port facilities in Derry, but not so much for shipping to the UK. But uh, overall, the port capacity in Northern Ireland is considered to be relatively small, and they feel that that there will act as a limiter in terms of the amount of products that come in. But quite frankly, it's ridiculous. If the UK is leaving to take back control, uh, that there is this backdoor entry, if you like, uh, into the UK market from the Republic of Ireland. Well, it, it is undoubtedly ridiculous to Irish minds or the minds of people uh, on this island and uh, those on our neighbour's island. Uh, But uh, what about people in Europe? Will they be confused by it? I think they have to be. Now, I suppose, and I know all countries, they they think in terms of maintaining the integrity of the borders from the perspective of the product that comes in or the people that come in. uh, It's the import uh, or the immigration that is the issue, not so much the export or the emigration. So I would imagine the EU would be reasonably relaxed at what the UK might choose to do, although they could have an issue at WTO level to say that they are treating one country, uh, one sovereign state, different from they treat other sovereign Mm. states, and they might demand because the WTO policy isn't the same as tariffs. If you make a rule for one country, that's the rule that applies for all countries. So technically, they're in violation of that. I know, uh, and so not hard. just that, but in addition to that, they're carving up their own country, and uh, they're dealing with imports in one part of the United Kingdom differently than they are in another part. Uh, very much, and we talked about borders, and the big issue was a border in the Irish Sea, etc., etc. At the political level, well, if this isn't treating Northern Ireland differently from the rest of the UK, I certainly don't know what is.
And the upshot of it is, I, I, I gather that a, a lot of the produce would have to be exported from the Republic to mainland Britain and face these tariffs because there wouldn't be the ports or the capacity to deal with uh, the amount of goods that are uh, involved. And uh, I believe uh, this is estimated uh, to result in a cost of around 600 million euro to farming. Yes, well, in terms of, of where the where the cost figure lies, you know, the minister uh, would have indicated that in terms of the work they have done, the cost of a no-deal Brexit for the entire agri-sector was $1.7 and then you can split that down amongst the sectors. Uh, meat, beef in particular is somewhere between six and $800 million. You know, we're, we're talking serious numbers here, and of course the reality is that those big numbers all filter back to the farms across Ireland that supplies the raw material that drives our agri-food industry. And why would it cost so much? Is it because of lost sales? Is it that the no, produce the, the, wouldn't sell in the United Kingdom because no, it's going to be far more expensive to buy Irish produce the, there? There, there? There's a double whammy for Irish mm. farming, and, and I'll use beef as the example. Uh, in the case of beef, the UK eats more beef than it produces. It imports about 30% of the beef that it consumes, with Ireland being the big supplier doing the majority of that business. Now, they have created, uh, they have imposed tariffs at one end uh, to control imports but they have also created a tariff-free quota. In other words, they're going to bring in the amount of product, about uh, almost 200,000 tonne of product on a tariff-free quota system. Now, the point I made earlier about under WTO is something that applies for one country has to apply for all. Mm. By imposing or introducing a tariff-free quota, that's going to be open to all comers, including Brazil, including the big South American countries. Mm. And that is essentially the UK throwing the door open to Brazilian beef. And the reality for Irish farmers is it costs 220 a kilo at the minute leaving the farm mm. gate. Irish beef is about 380 a kilo, and therefore that market will be wiped out. Uh, a race to the bottom, in other words. The lowest, bid, the lowest bidder is going Correct. to win, and the Irish will not be able to compete with the South American beef prices uh, or the North American chicken prices. Nor the North American uh, beef price either, where you mm. have uh, animals produced with the uh, growth and pro- promoting hormones that are used in that production system. That is the simple reality. Now, the UK might say we're not going to accept hormone-treated beef. That's fine. But they will still have uh, lots of product coming in from areas of the world where the standards are, I suppose, less uh, sharp than they are in Europe. And uh, therefore, it costs a lot less to produce. Um, we'll fare better, though, with poultry. Uh, I think the Journal is reporting this week. Uh, and pork, what about dairy products, cheese uh, and butter? Yeah, the, the UK uh, would take uh, almost a billion pounds or a billion euro of uh, Irish dairy products each year, the vast majority of which is cheddar cheese. I think it's about 800 uh, million of that. Uh, and that would have an absolute devastating effect on the dairy industry. Now, when, it's bad, when I say devastating, mm. it's not as devastating as it would be in beef because at the end of the day, the UK... It's a very important market for Irish dairy, but it takes a quarter of our total exports as opposed to with the beef or the pig meat sector, where it accounts for over half our exports. Uh, the other point that's worth noting dairy in terms of produce, products, you can switch somewhat. You can switch from cheese or cheddar production to powder. Now that brings with it its own cost, and it also usually is a product that's worth, worth less. So I think in the context of the Irish dairy industry and no deal Brexit, it will hit the price of milk and you could have a debate as to how many cents per litre it will hit it. But mm. I think the dairy industry would survive a no deal Brexit, whereas I would have serious doubts if the beef industry would. Uh, and it's not being overstated, in other words, uh, because uh, we heard Michal Martin talk about Armageddon yesterday and uh-huh. other very strong statements in the course I- of the last 24 hours. 
Absolutely, and it's something that we have been tracking in the journal since the referendum vote itself, you know, and just looking at the whole tariff rate structure. And I suppose if you were uh, in the library and going back over old issues of the journal, you would see the build-up to this from a long way back. Phelim O'Neill, market specialist with the Irish Farmers Journal. Thank you very much indeed. Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. Now, yesterday, the Oireachtas Health Committee discussed uh, the national cancer strategy it heard uh, from Cancer Trials Ireland, the Irish Cancer Society, the Health Research Board, officials from the Department of Health and representatives from the HSE. Avril Parr is Chief Executive of the Irish Cancer Society and she joins us now to tell us more. Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Am I right in thinking that this is the third cancer strategy uh, and uh, that in the course of uh, the last 20 years we've seen great improvements in terms of diagnosis services provided and outcomes for patients. That's true Michael um, when we first started Daftalday 30 years ago only 3 out of 10 Irish people survived cancer today 6 out of 10 do and that is thanks in no small part to the public donations that we've received to invest in life-saving research and also to improvements that have been made in public health services through our two previous national cancer strategies and uh, measures like centralisation of cancer surgery under the 2006 strategy, which means that patients are being are having their surgery carried out by doctors with more expertise and more experience in their particular type of cancer and survival rates have increased significantly as a result. But there are still big gaps in Ireland. Our outcomes are still poorer than other European countries. And it was this that the 2017 National Cancer Strategy set out to change by investing in cancer prevention and particularly in reducing waiting times for tests and for treatment. And well, as we are doing in comparison to how we did uh, a number of decades ago, we should be doing far better. And if we were to meet the targets under this strategy, we would in fact be doing a, a lot better. But your contention is that the strategy is underfunded, not just underfunded. In fact, you said shockingly underfunded. Yes, well, the uh, strategy was published nearly two years ago at this stage and the progress report for 2018 came out in February and six of the seven targets that were due to be met in 2018 were missed. Um, And this has a huge impact on patients. Um, It means that people are waiting excessively long periods for tests, for surgery, for radiotherapy because every every missed target affects real people. It affects, you know, the woman who's listening to your show who has mm. a lump in her breast that she hasn't had a, had a, a follow-up appointment to check if it is cancer or not. The father has blood in his urine. And indeed, the doctors and nurses who are trying to do their best for their patients in a chaotic system. And it's the early diagnosis of what might be causing uh, those problems uh, that is one of the most concerning missed targets and you were talking uh, about uh, a woman uh, whose doctor felt she needed urgent attention should have been seen within a fortnight. Yes, um, this lady had attended her doctor. I'm concerned about a lump in her breast. The doctor um, was concerned enough to say that she needed to be seen urgently at a breast rapid access clinic and that because it was an urgent case, she should be seen within two weeks. That deadline having been missed and she was still waiting for an appointment, she rang our nurse line very upset because her doctor had said it was urgent, so she was worried, thinking about a possible cancer growing inside her while she was waiting to be seen. And early diagnosis is absolutely crucial mm. in cancer. It really is the difference between life and death. If your cancer is caught early, 
the chances of survival for a vast majority of cancers are very high. Whereas if it's caught late, maybe as low as one in 10 people um, surviving. So that's why it's so important that there is the investment that was promised in early diagnosis. And a lump in the breast would be classified as a breast cancer symptom, would it? It would. Um, And now that's not to say every lump in the breast would not necessarily... But, but, but potentially, um, but it's, it would be the symptom of, of a potential breast absolutely. cancer. And that's why 95% of people who have symptoms of breast cancer should be seen within two weeks. That lady should have been seen within two weeks, but she's not the only person who isn't seen within that strategy target of two weeks. No, she's not. Um, targets were set for other cancers as well and for, for surgery. So, for example... I'm nine out of ten patients with certain cancers were to have their surgery carried out within the timeline set in the strategy. For so for some of those it's two weeks, some it's four. Um, but only seven out of ten did, mm. and nine out of ten patients starting radiotherapy were supposed to do so within 15 days, and just over eight and ten did. Um, so that's targets being missed in mm. in tests and surgery in radiotherapy, um, with the risk that look, for some of the people who are on waiting lists. Um, but for everybody on a waiting list, there's increased distress. Whether mm. you turn out to have cancer or need treatment or not, there's the worry. People often tell us that it, the worrying is the worst part. Um, is that kind of the average that we're 20% below average in terms of uh, reaching uh, these targets? Because I, I think it's 95% of uh, the breast cancer symptom patients should be seen within two weeks, but it's less than 75%. Yeah, well, it depends on the different targets. As I said, there's different figures for, for the uh, breast rapid access clinic, for, for surgery, for radiotherapy. But right across the board, we're seeing an underwhelming picture of underfunding and underperformance. And mm. the reality is, with more Irish patients getting cancer, the government needs to spend more to stand still. And the HSE service plan for this year explicitly states that they haven't been given enough money by government to stand still. They say mm-hmm. that they don't have enough to provide existing services to the increasing number of patients, let alone deliver the improvements that were promised under the National Cancer Strategy. And that's why we were before the Oireachtas Committee on Health yesterday. I'm highlighting that what the impact that these missed targets have on patients and pushing for funding to be made available. We've seen such incredible improvements in cancer care under previous national cancer strategies thanks to leadership and investment and this one can be the same if if the strategy is actually funded we can get our cancer outcomes up among the best in Europe but that needs political commitment and it needs funding. Is it an issue of cost Avril uh, and why does this funding need to to be made available because I would have thought that there was an economic argument to be made for this in that an early diagnosis would mean less treatment over a shorter period of time. Uh, A later diagnosis would mean more treatment uh, and over a longer period of time, which is far more expensive. You're absolutely right, Michael. Um, Yes, it does. Um, The treatment options narrow as as you go along and and typically become a lot more expensive. Um, But some of it, it's not all money. Some of it is around posts and workforce planning. I mean, one of the big issues, not just in cancer care, but obviously across the health service as well is the vacancies where they're having difficulty recruiting consultants, recruiting nurses. And in cancer, a particular issue is that we're finding it hard to attract back the best Irish people who have trained here and then gone abroad for experience in cancer centres in the States and Australia. And one of the reasons we find it hard for to get them to come back is that in the Irish system, there's no protected time for research. Um, so for clinicians 
to work with their patients on things like cancer trials to give them access to new medicines. If you're working in an advanced cancer centre in the States or in Australia, clinician would have typically two days a week to focus on research and three to work on their normal clinical uh, load. Here, there's no protected time for research and they're supposed to just find an extra 20, 30 hours on top of an already busy week. So that, that just creates an impossible situation and it means that the best people don't want to come back to Ireland. So that's why we were arguing yesterday as well for investment in research and protected time for doctors so that they can not only provide the best of the current standard of care um, for their patients, but can also ensure that they have time to keep abreast of what's happening in cancer research internationally and time to bring home new and better, more innovative treatments to their patients too. Is there a question of consultants' pay? Look, I mean, we don't get involved in those political issues around around strikes and, and pay. No, uh, I mean in terms of attracting people back home. Look, obviously it's one of the issues that, um, that the medical community has raised. And the one that I said they most raised with us has been around conditions of employment. So it's the fact that you're coming from, you know, working in a well-organised cancer centre where your patients are, you know, people are properly spread out over the course of the day. You have enough time to spend with each patient. You're able to put them on a clinical trial. You can be confident that you're giving them the best. You're coming from that into an Irish system, which is often chaotic. And that's the issue that um, medics most often raise with us. Mm. Uh, and how are we faring in terms of implementing uh, this strategy and uh, the previous strategies? Because I, I think when the strategic approach was first taken in this country, we were languishing uh, around the bottom of the European table. We were one of uh, the worst countries in terms of diagnosis and outcomes. And that's uh, improved greatly over the last 20 years to where we're now midway up the table. Uh, but uh, the rate of progression, how does it compare now to previous years? Well, we, we started at the very bottom. Um, so 20 years ago, our outcomes were the worst in Europe. Now we are mid-table, so services you know are good, but they're not great. And that does mean that you know there are people in Ireland who will die of cancer who simply wouldn't die if they lived in one of the better-performing European countries, places like Norway or, or Denmark or, or Austria. Um, so... What we're saying is, you know, we Irish people deserve the best. One in two of us, Michael, will get a cancer diagnosis in our lifetime. And when we do, we deserve the best. We deserve, you know, to know that we're getting the standard of care that was promised under the National Cancer Strategy and that we have as much a chance of surviving as anybody across the water in the UK or anywhere else in Western Europe. For an advanced country and advanced economy like Ireland not to be able to offer that to patients isn't good enough. All right. Uh, and what happens now after this hearing from uh, or at the Oireachtas? Uh, will the committee be uh, making recommendations to government or, or uh, is there a next step as such? Well, the, yeah, the, we got good engagement yesterday from, on a cross-party basis from members of the committee. So I know that they will be following up with, with the minister. I'm highlighting, as you said, the fact that, you know, from an investment point of view, this is an no-brainer as well as being the right thing for um to be done for patients and their families and we will continue to push until that happens. Um, we will also mention the you know, state investment in, in research is very low. Uh, Irish Cancer Society, thanks to the incredibly generous support of the public on Daftal Day, is on target to have spent €30 million Euro in cancer research in the last 10 years um, by the end of, of 2019. That is also one of the reasons why outcomes are getting better. 
and we want to keep doing that. So that's why we're calling on all of your listeners um, to get out and support their local Daftal Day committees, help us raise more so that we can do more for people affected by cancer and we can offer hope through cancer research and make sure that those outcomes keep getting better while at the same time putting pressure on government to do their part. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Avril Power is Chief Executive of the Irish Cancer Society. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. SIPTO's District Council in Meath hosts a seminar in the Ardboyne Hotel tomorrow with an array of speakers discussing how to tackle the housing and homelessness crisis in Meath. We're joined by John Regan, who's Coordinating Secretary of SIPTO Meath District Council. Good morning to you, John, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Somewhat uh, unusual for a trade union to be taking on an issue like this, uh, Tell us what the objective is. Well, the objective is, um, yes, it's unusual in the first instance for us to be involved, but it's, uh, it's, we've been campaigning on housing issues for many, many years nationally, and SIPTU uh, has made the decision to bring that down into the local communities and into the counties. What is the thinking behind that? Why is that the case? Because as a, a trade union, you generally represent working people. Is it that working people are struggling to find housing? Exactly it. And as well as that, it impacts on all their pay and conditions and their living standards. So uh, what hurts our members, obviously, we have a vested interest to try and assist and alleviate them problems. And that's why we're running this seminar. It's a crisis. It's a huge problem across the country. Uh, and uh, we've, we've uh, an insight into what is happening in Mead alone. And uh, the information and research that we've done on it uh, does not paint a very good picture. Uh, but it mirrors probably a lot of the country. Uh, hence, we'll be calling, at the end of it all, we'll be calling on all the councillors, uh, as it is an election year, uh, to support a resolution that we will be seeking, which has to be agreed with them. Uh, it'll go into all the municipal count, uh, uh, district uh, councils uh, and hopefully the five councils in need will support it. Uh, and uh, that will happen across the country and eventually, hopefully the pressure will be that um, housing will be the responsibility of the local authorities, which is um, which where it was best dealt with over the years, going back to uh, back to the 1930s, um, local authorities supported uh, many, many families in, in in making sure they got their first house. Mm. So that's where we're going. Well, well, what going role do they have? Where in it, it worked. I, I suppose uh, you could ask what role uh, do they have now? You might want to take the power back, uh, but quite often local authorities are only mentioned uh, when government is looking for somebody else to blame. That's right. And, and, and they have been starved out of... Um, capital investment and, and finances to do anything. But what we're hoping is that uh, if all the county council councillors around the country start rolling in behind this uh, resolution mm. to get it back into local authorities, it does a number of things. Apart from addressing the, the, the real crisis that housing and homelessness is, it deals with rental problems that is also in there. But it also has a knock-on effect then to direct staff in, in local authorities who historically were doing a lot of this work, they were the people that were hired directly by county councils to actually um, uh, deal with houses and, and, and homing and our homelessness. Um, 
for many, many years. And is and that the thrust of the resolution uh, that local authorities would uh, take full responsibility for public housing? It's the trust of it, but it also is call. It'll also be calling on uh, um, that we that we need this identified as a as a crisis, and that the constitution and the right to a house a house is absolutely uh, has to change. Legislation has to come in for that to happen. Well. I'm not sure that you're going to get the support of all local authority members. Uh, obviously, the councillors are affiliated uh, with the various uh, political parties, uh, and uh, I think there's uh, objections to uh, such a, a constitutional amendment. Yeah, look, it's not going to be straightforward, but if, if we get enough of county councils ro- uh, and councillors rolling in behind mm. this initiative, then that will uh, pressurise into the uh, national uh, arena as well. So that's the that's the uh, strategy behind doing this. Uh, but we will also be lobbying nationally. Uh, as you know, Raise the Roof is a trade union uh, campaign and we will most certainly be marrying onto that. And we will be calling on councillors and the general public uh, to roll in behind Raise the Roof initiative because that is certainly feet on the street has applied pressure and it has changed some thinking at national level but it hasn't got to where we want to, to, to bring it Right, uh, and this uh, meeting in Mead uh, tomorrow is one of many similar meetings that will take place in all local authority areas across the country I take it. Yeah, everywhere that SIPTU has a, a district council it'll be happening and where we have in district councils presently we're going to be setting them up. So this is a long term campaign. The housing crisis is not an easy, as you know, uh, is not an easy and a quick fix. It's a long, long term uh, strategy that has to, uh, you know, start somewhere and, and tackle the problem mm. uh, because it doesn't seem to be tackled at the moment. Father Peter McVerry uh, is a supporter of uh, the Raise the Roof campaign and Peter is uh, to attend tomorrow, I understand. Yeah, he's uh, he's our guest speaker. Uh, Peter, is, uh, as everybody knows, has uh, fought tigerously for many, many, many years uh, around this whole problem and uh, he will lend a lot of experience and a lot of uh, knowledge around uh, this direction. He equally has signed up to raise the roof uh, support and many other campaigns that are out there. So he's uh, he's a recognised figure. I was talking to the Ombudsman Peter Tyndall yesterday, John, about uh, direct provision centres uh, where asylums get uh, food and board. And those figures don't feed into the national homelessness figures, the official figures, uh, which are just under 10,000. Uh, but when you add in the people who are in refugee centres and women's refuges and who are couch surfing and so on, that figure far exceeds uh, 10,000. Thousand and uh, I mentioned that because you have a, a panel discussion uh, tomorrow, uh, which will uh, feature a representative from Culture, who will undoubtedly refer to the lives of people in refugee centres, uh, and uh, the women's refuge in County Meath will be represented as well. Yeah, and Meath partnership, and indeed you can see we have uh, a director from Housing County uh, in the Meath County Council, Council also yeah. speaking mm-hmm. there. So all of them people have. Uh, vast knowledge of what is happening in the areas that you've just identified um, and we expect a, a serious debate around all of that and hopefully a joined up uh, thinking around all of them organisations and ourselves moving forward to, to, to really tackle this huge crisis. Mm. And so big a crisis. I, I think the direct provision centres uh, where asylum seekers live 
uh, speaks volumes uh, because for years uh, people have uh, been saying, you know, give them the opportunity to live somewhere else. Uh, now people are granted refuge uh, and they can stay in this country, but they can't afford to get accommodation and they're trying to stay in the asylum seeker centres. Yeah, and look, it is, it's, it's one of many issues and, and uh, they all, all the issues that are uh, around this whole crisis all boats should rise together. No weakness should be left behind. And that tends to what, that is what is happening at the moment. Refugee centres is not the place that anybody wants to be in. Uh, they have a right to, the very same as everybody else, to be able to provide for their own family and, and, and have a, a roof over their head. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, you'll be meeting at 9 o'clock uh, tomorrow morning in the Ardboyne Hotel, and thank you for joining us uh, this morning. John Regan, coordinating uh, secretary of SIP2 Meath District Council. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in. Michael, we think you've gone a bit Brexit mad yep. with that singing this morning. Yep. And that comes in from myself, Chris and Maggie. <laughs> oh, OK, great stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that might wake you up, yeah. Because yeah, <laughs> we yeah, nearly yeah, fell yeah, off the yeah, chairs, yeah, collectively. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I, I, so, sometimes when there's nothing to say, you're better off saying nothing or saying something stupid. That's the way I live. Yeah. Uh, Debbie, those days, you are in fine song this morning, Michael. Margaret says, with all the ups and downs, thrills and spills, chaos and confusion associated with Brexit, it has all the hallmarks of a successful musical. Well, that's it. Actually, can, can, I, can I offer the idea? Can I offer the idea without charge, without looking for any sort of royalties or anything? If anybody wants to re-record uh, the song uh, to the new words that I put to it, if you love Brexit like I love Brexit, they're welcome to it. I think it'll be a big hit. It's anyway, Margaret's hit. proposing you for the role of Nigel Farage. I don't know how you feel about that one. Although yeah. it could have been worse. Not, it could have been Theresa May. I'm not that good looking. Charlie yeah. from Navin, uh, just watching... Uh, the Brexit in the House of Commons over the last couple of days and the Speaker of the House when it comes to the vote when he calls out the eyes to the right and the nose Mm. to the left he bellows out at the end of it unlock Mm. and sure they don't unlock Michael they bring in (laughs) another silly vote and they're still locked and they Mm. keep coming back in with silly votes No, they unlock the doors (laughs) yeah but they they don't lock themselves (laughs) no they lock the doors when they vote and then when the vote is in they unlock the doors and anyway Charlie Mm. thinks it's Mm. all unreal it's a comedy farce but at the same Mm. time very serious and he also just adds that today is a very momentous day for the whole of Ireland in connection with Bloody Sunday yet it doesn't seem from listening to your programme that people have learned from what happened in the past. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, we'll hear at 11 o'clock this morning whether there will be prosecutions or not. I think the expectation is that British troops will be prosecuted and we'll have extensive coverage of that on tomorrow's programme, one way or the other. Paddy from Dundalk, you'd wonder about the mindset of the MPs in the UK do they not think, do they think that they can dictate to everyone and that there will be no repercussions if they crash out with no deal? They are probably going to look for an extension now, but maybe the EU should just say no, leave with a deal or leave with no deal, but we are not going to give you any more time because what will we be giving more time for? Okay, Paddy. well, I think Paddy made four points there. I think the answer is yes, yes, <laughs> yes, and Yes.
All right, hold that thought. Uh, we'll go to the phones. Uh, Sinn Féin councillor in Ashburn, Darren O'Rourke, is on uh, the line. I'm sure there's a, a lot of concern locally after what happened there last Friday night and uh, gangs of Yumplas uh, coming into Ashburn from Swords, which resulted in one young man being hospitalised. Tell us more, if you will. Yeah, uh, absolutely, Michael, and I know you've, you've covered some of this already. Um, there's, there's huge shock um, in, in, in Ashburn, um, First of all, and I was, I was speaking to, to a number of people over recent days, um, the shock at the level of, of violence uh, in this incident. There's also there's, there's shock at the, the coordinated and strategic nature of the attack. Um, like, of course, we all wish best wishes to the, the young people involved. And, and, uh, and, and just a case of uh, it seems to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and the victim of a, a really aggressive and violent assault that's... That, uh, uh, left him in hospital, uh, yeah, and, yeah. and, and I, I, I think uh, you're uh, giving more credit to the mentality of uh, the umpires involved by talking about it being coordinated and strategic. It's probably more like dogs packing, uh, and that uh, this big group of umpires uh, mobbed together, uh, and then when they cornered one umpire, went wild. Yeah, well, 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 I think that's another way of putting, Michael. I, I suppose. Mm. We're saying the same thing here. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. literally the the you know the the coordinated nature of the numbers involved. The fact that the you know they had moved uh, uh, across the country essentially to, um, to 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 make this thing happen, um, and you know it really has shocked people, um, and and people are are shocked and they're angry and and they're disgusted by it. Uh, but what, uh, what's at the root of it? Uh, is it a football club? Is it a school? Do they go to the same discos or wherever young people go these days? Uh, what, yeah. what what is the connection between the Umphlas and Swords and the Umphlas and Ashburn? Yeah, well, well, there 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 is a degree of history there, and I think uh, and. and we need to be careful in relation to this because you're always in danger of actually missing what's what's actually going on if, if we if we just localise it to, to, to one incident. But in truth, what you have is, and you hear people talking about toxic masculinity, like you have you have groups of young people. Social media connects them. School and other interactions, discos and and, and nightclubs mm. connect them, and they you know they, it's a gang mentality, and it's. You know, young fellas in particular are coming of age, social media connections, lots of them at the gym, lots of them at physical activity, lots of them, you know, uh, working out and that kind of machismo that, that comes with that, watching the likes of, of Conor McGregor and everything that goes with that. Um, Not quite coming of age, though. I, I mean, uh, these really are minors. Uh, they're 14 to 16, aren't they? Yeah, that's, that, that, that seems to be the indication. But, uh, and, and, you know, we, we know as well that you know, this is not the, the first. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. For example, uh, either in Ashbourne or in Ireland or, or, or even in the region in terms of, of these types of incidents, um, we had similar incidents I know in the Ashburn area when, when uh, during the summer there when, when there was a uh, um, uh, uh, hurdy-gurdies yeah. in the area as, as my father might say but uh, um, the, the, like, I, I think the, the, the issue Michael, it's a number of things right yeah. uh, um, it's you know I, I, people talk about the idea of, of tox, toxic masculinity um, I think there is a need, you know, in, in Ashburn, we have a huge amount of resources and facilities for young people. Um, we have, from from A to Z, we have uh, um, archery to, to, to Zumba. Um, we have sports facilities, um, and we're always arguing for more. But, you know, we, we will have this conversation today, and there is discussion in the community. But I don't think that the young people involved in this incident will hear what we are well, saying to Probably them. not, and there's always two sides in every argument, and even if they do, there's the other side over in Swords. Uh, I'll have to rummage out that Donovan record, the hurdy-gurdy man. It's the only time I've ever heard it before. You mentioned it there this morning, uh, but on a, a more serious point, we're going into the St. Patrick's weekend, uh, and a, a lot of young people will be drinking, and I take it that there's the risk of repercussions and more of this type of thing. Is anything being done to prevent a repeat? Are the Gardaí talking to the bus drivers? These fellas can't get over to from Swords to Ashburn without a bus. No, no, they, they can't. And I know there's there's a new bus route there. And, you know, I, I, I think it's, you know, we need to be careful in, in terms of, uh, like, it's important that we have public transport routes and we should be welcoming them. But But at the same time, if if they are facilitating this type of, of activity, well then we need to to to, to nip, nip it in the bud. The guards were, were very good. They are they're monitoring social media. They're, they're they have their their own networks of of, of uh, detail in terms of of what what's happening. Um, they are aware. They are being vigilant, and they've committed to to uh, an increased presence in, in the Ashburn area okay. uh, in the days and weeks to come. But I, but I think at the, at the the root cause of all of this, Michael, you know. Back in the 80s, there was the, the mods and the rockers, and we, we've always had the issue around football hooliganism in, 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 in Britain and to a far lesser degree in Ireland. At the root cause of it, we need to give, um, you know, young people need to have uh, uh, something to look up to, and it needs to be, you know, this isn't limited to young people. You mm. go to, to any town in, in our region at the weekend um, and at three o'clock in the morning and you'll see plenty of aggressive behaviour. I think, you know, we need to um, aspire to something better. We need adults to aspire to something better and to 
to actually, you know, to to put, uh, if you can at all, to put a rein on on, on young people um, to give them uh, uh, better opportunities, but also to to okay. to, uh, to try and uh, get them to behave in a way that. That's, all right. Uh, well, uh, apart from the three young people who have been uh, arrested, uh, who will pay consequences for many years uh, to come. Apart from uh, the young man who's been in hospital, uh, there's uh, the future of all of these people, as well as uh, the security of everybody uh, in uh, the vicinity. And perhaps uh, there's uh, some food for thought for parents listening to us uh, this morning in Swords, in Ashburn, and elsewhere, especially going into the long weekend and the St Patrick's Day celebrations. We we'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks for joining us, Darren O'Rourke, local Sinn Féin councillor. Now, let's go back uh, to some more of uh, the comments that have been coming to us. What else have you got there, Marie? Well, back to Brexit, Michael. Pat from Dundalk believe it's t- believes it's time to go back to the people of the UK. He says that the referendum was nearly three years ago now and that people may feel differently. So mm. maybe it's time to do that. Well, we may be looking at another referendum or a general election. Now. It's a government that has lost control. Jack from Cullen, Michael, we might sneer and laugh at the English regarding Brexit, but the laugh could be on us. Yep. Just look at what happened with agriculture. Mm. He's referring to the mm. tariffs. Mm. Uh, Pauline says, will the EU, uh, the, e- the EU should not take the, the goods off the UK if they impose these tariffs, mm. says Pauline. Michael, in all of this Brexit confusion, I thought the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar made a very valid point yesterday. He says that the UK were so against the backstop because they didn't want the North to be treated differently. But even in the case of a no deal, it seems it is going to be treated differently, as can be seen by the tariff proposal. And that comes in from <laughs> yeah, Yvonne. Yeah, if it was an implementable proposal, yeah. Mm. And Jim says, what was the point in voting against against a no-deal Brexit if the default position is a no-deal. So that's just what he's wondering. Mm. Well, that's the legal position. Yeah, Unless they reach a deal, it will be a no-deal. Another listener, uh, just in relation to your interview with Avril Powers, says Mm. that anyone who has cancer should not be waiting and that this needs to be a top priority. Absolutely. And just to correct myself, it will be no-deal unless they reach a deal (laughs) or they decide to stay in the European Union. It will be. No, say yeah, that again yeah, now, Michael. Like, I mean, <laughs> if they don't reach a deal, there's two options. Yes. It's black and white. Yes. No deal or stay. No deal or stay. Yeah. Okay. Will they stay or will they go? <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> All right. All right. I'm thanks. not going to sing, Michael. Ah, go on. No, no I won't no, do no, that. Okay. I wouldn't All do right. that to our listeners. Not twice today. Okay. <laughs> thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to us being said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. And our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Let's go back to the confusion and the chaos in the House of Commons last night with the British government telling its own MPs to vote against its own motion. This was because of uh, the Spellman Amendment, uh, an amendment uh, that was put forward by Caroline Spellman MP, a Tory MP, uh, but she withdrew the amendment, which would have meant uh, that uh, the UK would not leave the European Union without a deal at any time. Now, she did withdraw that uh, amendment, but Yvette Cooper moved the amendment and was allowed to do so by the Speaker. This was voted on and it saw some government ministers abstain. The Secretary of State, Philip Hammond, explained the situation to the BBC this morning. And a number of colleagues um, responded to that by feeling that the best way um, for them to, to go forward was to um, 
abstain. But the real issue here is defying the prime minister, and that would be a resignation matter. The real issue issue here is that that motion, as amended, does not answer the question: How do we go forward? It's the House of Commons once again uh, expressing a view about what it does not support. It does not want there to be a no deal exit, and that doesn't surprise me at all. But the difficult question for the House of Commons is: How are you going to achieve that objective? And the Prime Minister has said, um, you know, many, many times that there are only two ways uh, to ensure we don't have a no deal exit. One of them is to vote for a deal, and the other is to vote to rescind the Article 50 letter and abandon Brexit altogether. Right, uh, that's Philip Hammond uh, speaking to the BBC uh, this morning. Brendan Smith is a Fianna Fáil TD for Cavan Monaghan, chairperson of uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee. He's on the line, and good morning to you, Deputy Smith. Uh, You're a a very experienced politician yourself. As a, a former government minister, how do you view what's happening in the UK? Has the Prime Minister lost control? She has. And, you know, we were called during the British Brexit referendum, the the slogan that was used was taking back control. I think what's urgently needed is the Prime Minister to take back control of our government. You had the incredible situation of MPs being whipped to vote against their own motion. And Mrs May has obviously lost control of her government. You have government ministers, senior cabinet ministers abstaining. Apparently you had a resignation. You had other ministers of state not supporting the government as well. So you had ministers voting against the government. A collective responsibility seems to be gone. And I saw some of the headings in the papers at 6 o'clock this morning on BBC and that they were talking about meltdown chaotic. Now where that leads to huge uncertainty, of course we'd be a victim of all of this. Um, what we need is stability in all countries in Europe and we need it in our neighbouring island because nobody will, will benefit by a no deal. The reality is that no one is ready for a no deal Brexit. Britain's not ready for it, Europe's not ready for it, and Ireland's not ready for it. And what is Britain ready for? I mean, do you think... That's a good question. I think think, Mr. mm. Mr. Hammond as Chancellor, and he indicated yesterday in his speech early on, I heard some snippets of it early this morning, was he he appealed to the House, meaning all all members of the House, to come together and forge a way forward. That's what I read. So he was saying, look, as a government, we don't have control. The Prime Minister's proposals would not be accepted. And the only way forward is through the House of Commons taking control. I know Caroline Spellman, she was a Minister for Agriculture along with me back some years ago, a very experienced person. You mentioned Yvette Cooper, a former Labour Minister, Hilary Benn, a former Labour Minister, Dominic Grieve, a former AG. They have been the people in the House of Commons who to us have been speaking common sense and trying to, to have a rational debate in regard to Britain and its future relationship with the European Union. But let us think today of the farmer that's out in Cooley or in South Monaghan or in County Louth who's, who's out, who's not making an income from suckler farming at the minute, who's struggling. They, they read the headings in the paper, be it the Farmer's Journal or any of the other local publications either, and they see that the beef sector faces huge uncertainty and huge challenges. Armageddon, as your party leader put it yesterday. Absolutely. And you, you take it. And I don't think you can even at this stage measure 
the damage that will be done to our agriculture industry should those tariffs that Britain announced yesterday be imposed on our product going to Britain. Because we, we have clear indications well from the European Commission that they will retaliate. Mm. Now, nobody in the continent of Europe will benefit by literally a trade war between the European Union and a third country. We'll come back to that in a, a moment, but do you think Mrs May can actually regain control or is it beyond her and if so what then well one of the things i suppose that that there's to us looking from outside there's no obvious successor to her as 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 a, a person who would seem to um, have a majority support in the conservative party to take over and be a prime minister that's looking at it from the outside so mrs may it'll probably continue to battle on and ch- Chancellor Ham- Mr. Hammond in there, mm. your clip spoke about, we all know what Britain, what the, some, a lot of the members of the British House of Commons are against. We don't know what they're for. And, and it's difficult for the European Union to negotiate with people when you don't know what they want. And that, 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 that message has been coming across from the House of Commons as well. But what I would go back to, I go back to our people on this island, people who are working extremely hard to try to, to survive, to try to, to, to make a weekly income. You take businesses that may have been planning to expand or consolidate, who who do their own trade deals with be it multiple uh, supermarkets of Britain or whatever who are who are selling mm. forward product. They are in a huge era of uncertainty now. And you take the farmer who may have been proposing mm. to buy in cattle or that. Is that farmer going to go ahead and proceed with the, with the purchase of cattle when all of this uncertainty and damage to our agri-food industry is out there and being spoken about? So that huge uncertainty is, is causing severe serious problems for our economy and will continue to do so. But and you have the farmer who's working extremely hard without ever Brexit coming along to try to make ends meet. But without finding ourselves in this legal default position of no deal, despite MPs wanting to leave with a deal, uh, does that mean that if there is to be a, a deal or if uh, the UK is to stay within the European Union, that there'll be a general election or a second referendum? Well, I think a general election, a second referendum. I know some people in, the, in, in Britain who might be very friendly with whom I know over the years through, um, through having been a member of the Council of Ministers and through the Foreign Affairs Committee, through the Irish, British Irish Parliamentary Body, along with other, other co- colleagues from, from the Dáil and Shannon. I speak to some of those people, both Conservative and Labour MPs, all of them, I would have to say, who are, who are totally against leaving the European Union. And they would say to me, they are not that confident that if there was a second referendum, what the outcome of it would be. Mm. Now, if there's a general election, then you have another uh, probably six weeks of, of four weeks of a campaign, a government to be formed afterwards. And I, I, I don't know if, there's a, if there are clear indications that one party would have a majority in the House of Commons. I don't think you have time at this stage for, another, for a general election. Decisions have to be made. I think one of the complicating factors as well is the forthcoming European Union elections. The European Union have indicated the right if Britain wants to extend mm-hmm. Article 50, that won't be a problem, it won't be opposed. But they seem to be talking about a short 
time frame or else if it's a longer time frame then Britain has to have European elections and th- th- that seems to have um, widespread opposition in Britain to holding elections so mm. there's that complication there and the complication the extension of article 50 the complication of uh, the tariffs that you mentioned uh, a moment ago as uh, they were announced yesterday it would seem that uh, they were a, a Trojan horse of sorts in that it was trying to confuse the issue of what a, a backstop means and they were suggesting that you could trade freely on this island without the need to introduce a backstop. Yeah, well, I, I think the whole idea of smuggling and, and the damage that was done to genuine businesses on both sides of the border, mm. that would very much come back into vogue as well. And the reality is then would, would it be used as to, to get product into Britain? Now, some people would argue that the ports in Northern Ireland don't have the capacity to increase trade that substantially anyway. But look at where there are opportunities like that, you will have criminals and you will have smugglers yeah. who would be who who would take advantage of any situation like that. And again, who suffers in that respect is the decent person, um, either self-employed or employing people but themselves. That's my point. They were never serious about it, were they? No. Mm. Well, what I would like to know is that they clear this with the World Trade Organization because nobody just can well the World Trade Organization wouldn't clear it. <laughs> you know, they're not serious yeah. about it. I, I mean, they're dr- just trying to confuse the issue. They're playing dirty. Uh, that was one tactic that we saw yesterday. They're at each other's throats, as we heard uh, the Chancellor of uh, the Exchequer uh, speak uh, this morning, uh, addressing uh, those questions from Nick Robinson on Radio 4, Philip Hammond, uh, conceding uh, that uh, they were able to abstain in a crucial government vote. And let's hear from the Secretary of State now. Michael Gove yesterday brought in uh, another interesting uh, not very, very worrying element to all of this because he's talking about how there's been no assembly or executive in Northern Ireland for the last two years and how this would become very complicated in the context of Brexit. Very, very difficult to sustain in the uniquely challenging context of a no-deal exit. Now, we, in the circumstances that the House has voted for no deal, would have to start formal engagement with the Irish government about further arrangements for providing strengthened decision-making in the event of that outcome. And that would include the very real possibility of imposing a form of direct rule. Now, that is a grave step, and experience shows us that it is very hard to return from that step, and it would be especially difficult in the context of no deal. Brendan Smith, how would you respond to that? an appalling comment by Mr Gove and I would like to say to him and his colleagues in the British government that they don't have the power to unilaterally abandon an international treaty that's lodged in the United Nations an international treaty of which the Irish and British governments are co-guarantors and we had a refer- we had referenda north and south on the 24th of May 1998 that Good Friday Agreement was overwhelmingly endorsed by all of the people of this island on that day and Britain doesn't have the power to think that they could um, impose direct rule and literally undermine the Good Friday Agreement and Mr Gove's comments are, are, are absolutely um, unhelpful to say the least. Worrying? Absolutely. And of course, again, we go back to we should have an executive assembly in Northern Ireland and two years without an assembly and executive has been a big blow to the people of Northern Ireland. It's a blow to all of this item because we should have had one vice representing the people of Northern Ireland in regard to this whole Brexit debate, which is critical for all of these items. And would you see the comments as having been threatening? 
Um, well, I, I don't know, but it just shows the utter chaos in Britain. If this was going on in a parliament in another country, I can just imagine the sneering of Mr. Rees, Muggs and others that those countries weren't capable of governing themselves. When you see, when you see that, hear that type of comment and see some of the scenes in Westminster, we want stability in Britain. And I'd love if, 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 if the, the British government could, could, could ensure that they would have a deal with the European Union. But let us remember the biggest victims in a no-deal Brexit will be the Irish economy and all of this island. We don't want to see that. We want to see a good trading arrangement between Britain and the European Union when Britain leaves the European Union. And of course, all of us, if we, if we had a say in the matter, we'd want Britain to be remaining okay. in the European Union. We've been good, close partners over mm. the years. We're, our economies are so interdependent. We have a lot of common interests that we worked on together in the European Union. When Britain leaves the European Union, that ally of ours in most issues will be lost. I know when I was Minister mm. of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food, they were diametrically opposed to us on some issues and, and we had plenty of, of good um, vigorous debates on issues at the European Council but on other issues where we had a common view and a common interest we were very close allies who worked closely together. Brendan Smith thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning Deputy Smith is uh, Chairperson of uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee and uh, Fianna Fáil TD in Cavan Monaghan. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, when is St. Mary's Special School in Navan going to be built and open for young children uh, to avail of its services? Uh, this is a question that was asked in uh, the Dáil yesterday by Fianna Fáil TD in Meath West, uh, Shane Castles. He was raising the issue because it's been promised now for some seven years on a site that was to deliver three schools. Two of uh, the schools have subsequently being built and he was responded to on behalf of the government by the Junior Minister for Health, Deputy Jim Daly. The school, St Mary's Special School, is, has crossed all the major hurdles. I mean, some of the bigger hurdles are getting on the plan. You know, I have schools in my own constituency that we can't get on the, in the next plan or trying desperately to get on the next plan. It has a, a planning provision, which is a huge achievement, as you know from your time in public life, that it's a, it's a big obstacle to have. It has been through the, uh, the design process, which is the 2A stage. That's where the issues arose. It now has gone to 2B, which is the final stage of design. That's just firming up some minor changes that have resulted as a result of the issues with traffic. That has to be approved by the department, and then you're into the pre-quals which is basically uh, narrowing down the list of contractors and going to tender. I, could, I can't give you a date here, and I'd be low to give you a date even if I could, because you know, that can build expectation and build disappointment. But this is on track. This is progressing well. There, I just outlined the, tom- outlined the timelines involved, six to seven months for the tendering process, and before that you have the pre-quals and the detail to be, but they're, 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 both of those processes are weeks as opposed to months typically. typically. You, but I don't want to give a date because you know, we'll, we'll build disappointment around that again. Jim Daly responding to Shane Castles in the Dáil yesterday. Now, he didn't give a, a date. Shane Castles is on the line. You believe it'll be another 18 months and it's a school that's badly needed. To make the point, you told uh, the story of Tracy Hallsgrove and uh, the life she lives with her, her little girl who would very much uh, benefit from the school being available. Uh, good morning, Michael, and, and thanks for the opportunity uh, here this morning. Yes, well, I, I secured a special debate yesterday uh, in the Dáil uh, about St Mary's Special School and, his, and uh, the minister there talking about Bill Disappointment. Uh, the parents of, of, of the children in this school, which is 42 years in existence, uh, have had nothing but disappointments over the last number of years. And, and yes, I did raise 
uh, the particular story of Tracy Hallsgrove, uh, whom I met uh, earlier this week in Old Castle, uh, because this school, while based in Nav and Michael, is actually a school for uh, the only school that caters across County Mead. Indeed, there's, peop- there's parents coming uh, with their children from Louth and Cavan in Dublin as well. And I know that Tracy's little girl, Fanula, uh, has been in that school since five years of age. She's 12 now. And she has to get up every morning after 6am uh, to be on a bus for 7.30am that takes nearly an hour and a half collecting other children uh, to get to Navin. And so she has some arduous journey, which she's done since she's five years old, uh, just to get to school. And as Tracy said to me, you know, if she knew that when Fanula got to school, that she would have a dedicated, purpose-built soft playroom to enjoy uh, instead of a temporary one, that she'd have such a weight lifted off her shoulders uh, because she'd know she'd have uh, the best facilities. Instead, the children are in what the parents believe to be outdated facilities, I think. It's a completely antiquated, and that's no reflection on uh, the the principal, Maria Cordor, the chairman of the board of management, Bob O'Callaghan, and all the staff whom I know are doing an amazing job for the 90 children uh, who are attending. But it's so antiquated that... Some of the children can't even be all catered for in the school. Some have to go a mile down the road to a HSE facility uh, in the shopping centre complex. Uh, and so that's why this dedicated building is needed. I mean, I, yeah. as you have said there, there's, there's a campus reserved uh, in Johnstown for all of these schools. So the primary school, the secondary school and the special school. And St Mary's Special School is the only one that hasn't been delivered. Now these kids are going to get enough knocks in life uh, without getting a knock so early in life that they can't even get their own uh, school. And I sat in the hall of St Stephen's National School uh, in Christmas 2013 looking for the looking at the plans for this school uh, and being told back then of its advancements and affirmations uh, that would be advanced. Uh, and we're still no further on. And, you know, Minister Daly talks about not raising expectations, mm. being loathed uh, to give a date. Uh, Minister Bruton came down here last summer on a on a photo uh, stop tour of Mead, um, smiling, and in particular at that school, he pulled up with the three government ministers in Mead. Uh, and in fairness to the Mead Chronicle at the time, they weren't buying the bull. Uh, they ran a front page headline going, "Build our school now, Minister." Uh, despite the visit of four government ministers, uh, staff and parents mm. of the ninety pupils uh, are still set to wait another eighteen months. That was eight months ago. If you look at the response that Minister Daly gave me yesterday, he talked about the fact that it would take three months uh, just to go through the pre-qualification of the contractors and another eight months after that uh, in terms of the tender stage. Mm. That's even before they received the documents. So we're still looking another 18 months away. Listening to the Minister, it sounded pretty positive, but technical and difficult to understand. And he did talk about the pre-qualification stage and 2B stage and that they would be completed in a matter of weeks rather than months. But then he said that the tendering process would take up to six to seven months. Uh, And I'm sure many of us were a bit confused. Your contention, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that very little has changed. uh, And you believe that this could take as long as 18 months. Well, very little has changed from the point that former Minister for Education Richard Bruton toured the county uh, last uh, June with the three government ministers from Meath, at which point it was 18 months away back then. Since then, we're still getting the same kind of timeframes um, because it takes three months for pre-qualification, eight months for tender, that's 11, and that's, that's, that's when the documents are lodged. The documents aren't lodged even yet, so it could be still 18 months away, it could be still next summer uh, before this starts, instead of this summer. Mm. Uh, and after seven years of being promised... That's the frustration. So I think when I met the parents, 
they were just asking in terms of, of the logjam uh, and progressing this. The minister alluded in his supplementary uh, response in terms of traffic management issues and so forth. Mm. If there's traffic management issues, well, then they need to be addressed. There's 2,000 pupils already on that campus. There's only 90 students in this school, and those 90 students need this facility at Damsite more than any student. Yeah, and one of um, Dan being Fanula, uh, that little girl that you were talking about, and how she and her mother Tracy makes that journey every morning from Old Castle. I don't think anybody would envy having to do that every day, but they're travelling far and wide, aren't they? There's 90 students, and they come from Mead, Cavan, Louth, and Dublin. Yeah, it's, un- it's unbelievable. Actually, chatting to, to Tracy. Uh, she told me about the fact, you know, the students coming from Banlabaki, and she said, you know, I had to look up the, the map to find Banlabaki, and I said, well, I know it well. It's the, it's the furthest point. If, if Old Castle is the furthest northern point of my constituency, Banlabaki is the furthest point in the southern part of my constituency, right down on the Offaly border. You could puck a ball into road in County Offaly, and there's students coming from Banlabaki, and that, I can tell you, is one hell of a journey to have to make every morning to get to school. And the least the children deserve when they get there is a purpose-built facility. Uh, because, you know, they, mm. uh, as Tracy explained to me, the new school would have something as just in each classroom, they would have three different sinks. Why? Because you would have three different sets of tap, because not every child can use the same type of tap. They're the kind of small things that you have to take into consideration mm-hmm. when you're building a school uh, of this complexity and to make sure that you're actually catering uh, for, the, for the needs because okay. they are catering for students between the ages of 4 and 18 with moderate learning disabilities, autism, up to severe and profound learning disabilities. Okay, and, and, and this... Children deserve the best. And this, the most uh, important issue that there is for those children and indeed for their parents. We leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed Thanks, uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Fianna Fáil TD in Meath West, Shane Castles. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. As you heard yesterday, a Brexit border conference took place in uh, the Carrickdale Hotel to help businesses prepare for Brexit. Marie Kearns was there to find out exactly what it was all about and what businesses should be doing in these uncertain times. From our own part, we are continuing to plan, we are continuing to prepare our no-deal preparations, as I've said, the omnibus bill, but also in trying to engage and reach out to business. And if you have not... You know, and there's probably not too many people in this room who haven't, but if you haven't started to look at your own business, your own sector and industry, please do. There is so much information available. If you go to www.gov.e forward slash Brexit, it's in two very clear and distinct sections. Brexit and you, how this impacts your life, whether it's the fact that you trade or that you uh, you buy online, whether it's you're going on holidays, whether you travel to the north as part of work or business and Brexit and you. And it's put into very clear uh, paths as to how you can identify uh, how this might implicate or have implications on your own business, what measures you can put in place uh, and obviously where possible what supports are available to you, whether it's financial or otherwise. And there is a huge amount of support available from the Irish government through into Trade Ireland uh, and also through the ITI at the moment. So... I will finish on that. Um, I want to wish you every success for the conference today. Again, to congratulate those for organising it. I think we are at an extremely crucial point. There are, I think, parts that we can't prepare for. We can uh, try and put as many measures in place and we can engage and talk with each other. But the fact of the matter is Brexit means change, whether we have a deal or not. And there are many things that we cannot prepare for. But by engaging in this way, by being here, by having our panellists and by taking on board as much information as possible, I think 
working together, we can do everything in our power to mitigate the fact that Brexit is happening, uh, unfortunately, but that we are going to continue to work together to see that the progress that we've made over the past 20 years and long before that, that it continues and that we continue to see that into the future. That was Minister for European Affairs Helen McEntee addressing the Brexit border conference in the Carrickdale Hotel yesterday, which was attended by hundreds of business people from both sides of the border. Pat McCormick, President of the Dundalk Chamber of Commerce, who organised the event as a joint initiative with the Newry Chamber of Commerce, said that the event was all about helping business people to be Brexit ready. Today's conference is not about trying to solve any problem. It's trying to bring as much information as we can to people. It's to help people to try and prepare and to know what supports are out there to help them get their businesses, their trading and everything else ready for whatever form Brexit may take. And obviously that's a changing picture at the moment. Is there an air of bewilderment today because of events that have unfolded in Westminster? I think there's an air of bewilderment around Westminster at the moment. Um, So, of course, that's going to percolate this direction. We heard some indications this morning of what tariff regime may or may not apply if there is or is not a no-deal Brexit. So it's very hard to know. We see that uh, there's going to be no tariffs for goods that come into the United Kingdom through Northern Ireland. But given that 70% of Northern Ireland's physical exports actually travel through Dublin Port, I'm wondering how that's going to work. Are your members worried? Of course. There was initially fear. There was grief. There was worry. Um, apathy in some people's part because they just didn't know what was happening. We've had two years now of uncertainty, of worry, about lack of direction about where this is going. And the latest shifts in policy and movements about deals and no deals and so on are obviously a huge concern for people who are trying to plan their businesses, trying to plan for their employees, their families, their future. They just don't know. Um, Our hope today is that people will have a picture. They'll know where to go to get information, to have a better picture of what the future is likely to hold so that they can actually put their plans on a more concrete footing. Thomas McAvoy, head of Enterprise with the local Enterprise office in Louth, says that no matter what happens, support is there. We don't know what shape Brexit will take. So what my address to businesses today is there is support. Irrespective of the type of Brexit we get, Businesses can take certain actions to help improve their position. And we're encouraging businesses to talk to us, or if you're a client of Enterprise Ireland, to talk to Enterprise Ireland. And the idea is that if businesses take a look at their operations, see where they're exposed to Brexit, and then go and seek help to plug those gaps. And there are a number of programmes that we can help them with. So, for example... If companies want to look to become more competitive, there's a lean product that we can offer them. If they're looking to innovate, there's a programme we can engage with them on that. If they're looking for new markets, we have an export grant. So there are different types of supports and we're encouraging businesses to talk to us to get those supports. And the type of changes they'll make and the type of supports that we're providing will help them become a better business, irrespective of the type of Brexit that comes out of the negotiations. Councillor Maria Doyle, Vice Chairperson of Louth County Council, who gave the welcoming address, said that she feels the concern on the ground amongst business people in the Louth area. It's growing. Uh, As the uncertainty continues, uh, people are unsure of what's going to happen. So Louth County Council are are trying to be proactive in in this regard, and this is why they're co-hosting this event uh, through the local enterprise office, 
with Newry and Moore. And I think that type of collaboration between the local authorities north and south is really crucial at the moment. We have a long-standing um, memorandum of understanding with Newry and Moore, but I think events like this this morning help kind of augment uh, those sorts of relationships, which really are so important in the current environment. It just seems like the juggernaut that is Brexit just keeps rolling on, and we're 16 days away now. We still, you know, really don't know what's going to happen, and. I think uh, the the local enterprise office here in Louth has put on a series of events over the last uh, number of months in particular to help businesses. But until we really have some more certainty, it's very difficult for businesses and for people who work and travel north-south. I mean, I'm uh, a primary school teacher and a lot of the staff that work with me come, come over the border every day. So it just leaves a lot of confusion and uncertainty for people. Hopefully in the next, in the next few days, we'll have a little bit more certainty. But whether the, the Conservative government in the UK Last the last the week. That'll be that'll be another thing to, to see. Paul Convery, president of the Newry Chamber of Commerce, says that the concerns of business people north and south of the border are similar. What we're concerned about is the, the concept of a hard border. We're very concerned about the concept of tariffs being introduced, which are, are wholly unnecessary. Um, you know, we live a couple of miles away from each other. The free movement of people. The free movement of, of goods are absolutely critical to the livelihoods of many people on the border region and to the success of this region in, in the future. I know you probably haven't had time to study the document in full, but what's your initial reaction to that uh, suggested measures from the UK revenue in relation to tariffs this morning? Well, any notion of, of an introduction of tariffs, um, irrespective of, of north-south or, or, or south-north, are always going to be challenging and disappointing to us. Um, to focus more, more so on the positives, uh, I have to say Minister McEntee has been an as- absolute inspiration um, this morning, as was Minister Coveney when he visited here uh, just over a year ago. The support that we're receiving from, from the Irish government in terms of representation um, of the Good Friday Agreement, which is critical to um, the border region and critical to the livelihoods of so many people here really is second to none. The key message today, I think, is one that even though businesses don't know what's around the corner in the sense of will there be an extension to Article 50, will there be a no-deal Brexit, that there is a need to put contingency plans in place. That's what this conference is all about. Absolutely. It was one of the three key messages that Minister McEntee left with us was to make sure that uh, businesses don't walk blindly into um, the consequences of of a potential exit on, on the 29th of March. We would implore all businesses to do some preparatory work and there's lots of information online there's lots of information available from either the Newry Chamber of Commerce or the Dundalk Chamber of Commerce and we would implore our members to reach out. Seamus Lehney, Policy Manager with the Freight Transport Association, was part of the panel session today. Uh, the, the primary message from us today was about the impacts of a no-deal Brexit would have on Northern Ireland and obviously on the Republic of Ireland through the border as well. Our major concern is a no-deal Brexit because it ultimately it will lead to, to a breakdown in supply chains because of uh, fiscal and regulatory controls. At the moment, um, we're faced with 4.6 million goods vehicles crossing the Irish border annually. So to have any type of control on these is going to add to costs, time delays, and obviously it will impact industry in Northern, uh, in Northern Ireland specifically because we rely on uh, integrated supply chains throughout the island of Ireland. Is there a worry from people you've been talking to that businesses could fold or could lose trade? 
Yeah, well, that, that, that's even, we've been saying that obviously, but that, that claim has been backed up recently by the Northern Ireland um, Select Committee and the House of Commons, who actually acknowledge in a report published at the weekend that uh, a, a no-deal Brexit would lead to job losses, and indeed um, many companies in Northern Ireland relocating to the Republic of Ireland, or GB. There's still a feeling of hope amongst people I spoke to today. Yeah, there's certainly hope. You know, I'd, I'd be fairly optimistic. I think um, there'll be an overwhelming majority in the House of Commons tonight will vote against yes. a no-deal. Yeah. But the big problem is the, the, the legal default for Brexit anyway if we don't get an extension or we don't get Theresa May's deal through the legal default is no deal regardless so we just can't sit back on our laurels after tonight we still have to keep working to make sure there is a deal or worst case scenario we get a decent length extension. We're home for a deal. We're still optimistic. You know, I would still think, I know the Prime Minister, you know, I've, I've met the Prime Minister three times now. Um, she's adamant that she will get her deal through the House of Commons. And I think maybe she's counting down the clock on this. And maybe, you know, she might try another time. I wouldn't put it past mm. the Prime Minister. She might try it on the 11th hour again. And risk, you know, for Brexiteers, they may risk losing Brexit altogether if they don't support it. And finally, you may not have had a chance to digest it yet, but the proposals this morning regarding the towers from the UK Revenue What's your initial thoughts to that? Um, Honestly, it'd be shambolic. Um, because really you would have goods coming into Northern Ireland from companies in the Republic or anywhere else in the EU would be tariff-free, regulatory-free. However, those same goods arriving into Holyhead or Dover would be subject to tariffs. So you have basically a two-tier system within the UK where goods can come into Northern Ireland tariff-free, but tariffs are applicable in in GB. And the problem there is that you could actually skew the market. You could be a company based, let's say, in, in County Louth, and if you ship your goods from Dublin to Holyhead, you could be paying up to 50% tariffs. Yeah. But if you simply just take them into Northern Ireland and right. ship them out through Belfast or Warren Point, there'll be no tariffs. Nothing. Marie Kearns reporting for us uh, from uh, that uh, Brexit conference uh, yesterday that was organised by the Chambers of Commerce in Newry and Dundalk. And that's where we run out of time. Our programme will be available to you by way of podcast on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon, if you'd like to listen back. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Murray in the control term. I'm Michael Godwin and we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie 